0: Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the CBS All Access series, The Stand, Episode (laughs) 5. Fear and loathing in New Vegas. Let's start the show. In our first view of New
1: Vegas, we get a sense of the debauchery there, as Lloyd Henry serves as Flag's right-hand man, with Julie Lowry his main squeeze. Into this environment come two spies from Boulder, Tom Cullen and Dana Jurgens. Tom is treated poorly, but Flagg can't see him. Dana, however, is seen and caught. Back in Boulder, Franny and Larry are suspicious of Harold, Harold and Nadine continue to plot, and Mother Abigail decides to bug out. Jay, before we get into our thoughts on this episode, why don't we listen to some listener feedback? We've got a couple from
0: last episode and then uh, some stuff on this episode. That sounds like a great idea, Sean. And by the way, you can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. All right. Our
1: first feedback was on Twitter from Liz. And we had mentioned in the last episode that we didn't get the title of episode four, The House of the Dead. And she said, maybe the title refers to Hemingford Home, where Mother Abigail is the only living person. And once she's tweeted that, I said, yep, that's probably it. We just totally missed that.
0: (laughs) And it's about as obvious as blank pages. Yes,
1: exactly. It is very obvious. So uh, I think I was looking for a much deeper meaning, and it turns out it was surface level all along.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We got an email from Samuel G., and Samuel said that he totally understands and agrees with our criticism, and that the way the show is structured totally undermines character development. He goes on to say that despite its flaws, he's still enjoying the show. He finds himself grinning from ear to ear quite frequently, just watching these characters that he knows and loves so much. And I I see where where you're going there, Samuel. It's fun to see these characters who have only existed in your imagination come to life on screen. Samuel then goes on to say that he especially loves what he's seen of Tom and Nick, and I do too. He also says that he's surprised that after four episodes of the show, we still haven't had a single glimpse of Vegas or any of the events going on there, and he thinks that it seems odd how they're laying out the groundwork of this us versus them story when we are yet to see any of them yet valid point. We did see a lot of Vegas in this episode, Samuel, so I wonder if this has lived up to your expectations. And When you you say we saw a lot of Vegas, we saw a lot of Vegas. Yeah, (laughs) we sure did. (laughs) Samuel concludes his email with the question, where's Trashy? Also a very good question. Yes. So thank you for writing in, Samuel, and we are going to be talking about uh, some of these things a little bit further. And uh, keep the feedback coming. Yes, indeed. We also got an email from Sergio A. And he says he's really enjoying our review of the series and that he was honored that we read his previous email. Well, of course we read your email, Sergio. We welcome everybody's feedback. So please uh, keep corresponding with us. And uh, to all our listeners, send in your feedback and thoughts on The Stand TV series and everything else we cover on the podcast. Sergio goes on to say that in episode four, when Harold is shown eating his payday, he wishes they could have kept in the detail of Harold's love of chocolate payday bars, since his chocolate fingerprint is what gave him away as to reading Fran's diary. And uh, that is a really good point, Sergio. Um, Fran's diary wasn't as important here in terms of Harold finding out how people really feel about him and things like that. But I think they could have done something with a, a chocolate smear or fingerprint and yep. had something lead back to Harold a moment too late. That would have been cool. Or maybe Frank should just bug his apartment and spy on yeah. him that way
1: and figure out what he's doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Sean, but I think it would take more than about 30 seconds to take apart a plush doll and replace its eye with a spy camera and then, you know, return to the dinner. In my in so-called Friends home, yeah, but he managed to do that perfectly. That's our herald, yeah, and he should have left one big chocolate fingerprint next to that
1: that <laughs> right out of the panda bear. <laughs> uh, all right, so we heard from public defender seven one six on Twitter, and he or she is somebody who follows us closely on Twitter, so we appreciate the feedback. Public defender seven one six said that the best episode so far was four. I think Jay would agree with you on that. And that they liked this one as well, especially the flag and Dana scene, which was good. And uh, if you remember from our book coverage, the flag and Dana scene is one of my favorites as well. There was a little bit of a change in this episode as it was in the book, but nothing that I found too, um, too distracting. I thought it was fairly, it hewed close. And for what you're going to do on a TV screen, I, you know, I wasn't expecting the 10 minute palaver that the two of them have you know, when flag is sitting down cross-legged on the floor.
0: Yeah, it hit all the right notes, including Flag accidentally knocking over the champagne on ice. Yep. I remember that distinctly from the book.
1: <laughs> Flag didn't get very angry when Dana did herself in, though. He was just sort of resigned to it. He just sort of sat down like, eh. in the book, he gets pretty angry, I think.
0: Yeah. Even after the knife banana trick, yeah. you think that'd be an opportunity to laugh. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, you thought you were going to stab me with a knife. Now it's a banana instead we
1: get an acting lesson acting thank you thank you Mm -hmm. we also got what can best be described as a twitter rant from six eight zero 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 one i'm not going to read the entire rant but if you follow us on twitter you should be able to find it six eight zero zero one i pulled some highlights and they say honestly i'm starting to believe that whoever wrote the screenplay has never read the stand but instead Oh, oh man but instead just sat next to someone on a bus trip and based this TV series on their description of the story. Yikes. Every character except Harold has been cut to the bone and there is no depth at all. Six, eight, zero, zero, zero one. We are going to talk a little bit about that because I think that that is a spot on observation that the characters have been cut to the bone and there's no depth to them. And I think that that is doing the show a great disservice. So I will agree with that. And you'll hear more about that later in the episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I came across somebody's description of this adaptation that I thought was so good that I would quote it here, that the show is like flipping through a photo album of vacation pictures 20 years after the fact. A lot of, oh yeah, I remember that, and some feeling of fond nostalgia, but absolutely no context as to why you feel that way. And it's pretty boring for anybody who wasn't on that vacation with you. So that nails it. This show has any meeting, only to people who have read the book and cherished the book. And that same audience of people is put off by the show because it, it's making just such strange choices in its adaptation. Yeah. There is no set of people, I think, that the show works for. I've yet to find them, and I can't imagine who that would be. I'm going to
1: dash through these last three listener feedbacks. The first one's from at Takuro Spirit. What a great handle. Um, yeah, I love it. Uh, they say the Vegas stuff was a bit too porny for my tastes. We will get into that a little bit later, but great comment to Kuro Spirit. Um, somebody who goes by the walking dude on Twitter said, I hated how they depicted Vegas. The mother Abigail and flag stuff seems like an afterthought. Also agree. And then finally, from our good friend Heathen King Jay, a simple this episode was extremely bad.
0: It is just like Heathen King to put things so succinctly. Yeah. Well, Ethan King, what you did
1: in five words, we're going to now spend another 45 minutes discussing. So here we go.
0: (laughs) So Sean, let's get back to our discussion of Vegas. And I'll just start off by saying, can somebody give us the old Vegas? Because new Vegas isn't working for us. Not at all. My thoughts
1: on what Vegas represents in the book, and I realized the book and the TV show don't have to be the same, but I think the themes that come out in the book should be carried over into the show. Yeah. And that is that Vegas is supposed to be a dictatorship run by flag in which a lot of engineers and military and straight laced people are running a very efficient place. They get the power on quicker. Everyone plays by the rules. There's no drugs. Everyone thinks alike. I think of it very much as a fascist type of state in which that's what flag has brought about i agree and that is not what we see here at all um we heard a little bit earlier that that vegas is a little bit too porny for takuro spirit and that's because that's just one aspect of it this is a orgy filled bacchanal this vegas um mm. we start off by showing people working at the hoover dam to get the electricity working da- that's where dana's at and then we get this this tracking shot into Vegas, and it just looks like a very simple Vegas. Like, it doesn't look any different, it's just sort of generic, but we don't get any sense that this is someplace that has been taken over by Flagg, and that has a population that is scared from him. And then when we see all the nudity, and the sex, and the drugs, and the drinking, and there's no order, it just is, is just not what I was expecting at all.
0: Yeah, it really doesn't work. And the fact that there is this this society that we get a hint at with the folks like Dana who are working really hard to at the Hoover Dam trying to do things like bring electricity back online and power Vegas so that they can have a functioning city. Um that really just doesn't line up with what we see on the strip. Yeah, right? There are literal bloodbath gladiatorial murder battles going on. That are right next to nonstop sex parties. Right. And it kind of feels like those things would cancel each other out or one would make the other impossible. Do you get off work at the power plant <laughs> and then just go have sex in the middle of a hotel lobby? Is that, is that the deal? Like, Is that yeah. how people blow off steam? It's like, oh, I just worked for 12 hours. I'm exhausted let me put on my jock strap and have uh, a sex you know for another 3 hours while i watch other people murder each other okay right unlimited yeah.
1: freedom sure it started off well too because when we see tom there you get this very over it secretary who's in charge of processing the new citizens to vegas and i'm like mm-hmm. oh they're going to show like this bureaucracy that has been set up by flag and lloyd and how everyone's just sort of a cog in this bigger machine. And I'm like, oh, that's sort of cool. She seems like frustrated and out of it. And then it really turns into something that makes no sense whatsoever.
0: And also like people drank alcohol in the book Vegas, but there was a crucifixion early on when we first see what Vegas is really like and what Vegas is all about. And the reason that that character was crucified was because he did drugs. Yep. In this TV Vegas, people are just like, doing cocaine and all sorts of stuff left and right and apparently flag doesn't care. This is about freedom. this is about do whatever you like right So instead of having an ordered fascist state that is efficiently trying to defend itself and prepare an offense against the Boulder group yep it's just anarchy. I don't think you can accomplish a, a lot if you have anarchy No because if you're supposed to go to the Hoover Dam and work a shift, and you also have the freedom to say, I'm doing what I want. Guess what doesn't happen? Yeah, <laughs> You don't get generators running. So I, I don't know what the show is trying to tell us. In setting up a comparison between what some human beings have formed in Boulder versus what other human beings have formed in Vegas, what is the show telling us about those two opposing halves of society? Um, Because another thing that the show is doing that I'm not a fan of is that they portray hetero monogamous relationships as good, quote unquote, good, see Boulder, uh, and all other sexual orientations as bad, see Vegas, Mm. right? The place where there are gay people and, um, I guess maybe non-monogamous relationships. The only place we see that is in Vegas. Yep. So the only examples of things that don't look like Stu and Franny and how they connect to each other is by the quote-unquote bad people. So what's the underlying message there that the show is telling us? Yeah, not great, Bob. It's not great. You know, the book was written in 1978, then rewritten a couple more times. And even in 1990, there were some gay characters. And this was, I, I feel like, King, who has been a little bit ham-fisted about these things, (laughs) did a better job than this show that was created in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. One other piece
1: about the Vegas that doesn't work for me is the book Lloyd is portrayed as a hardworking man who's doing flags bidding. Yeah. I see him as a guy who's up at dawn taking notes of, here's my checklist of the things I got to do today and make sure that they get done. At whatever cost, he's giving status reports up to Flag. He's checking in on everything. He probably doesn't go to bed until nine at night. And if he's lucky, he gets a couple fingers full of whiskey and a screw from one of his women. And that's it. And this Lloyd is just living it up, right? Mm-hmm. He's got the crazy suit. He's whooping it up. Seems to have time to do whatever he wants, which is wandering around this hotel doing nothing. And you know, part of that is we're spoiled by Miguel Ferrer. But the second yeah. part of it is Lloyd character is so well written in the book. You're not supposed to like him, but you're supposed to understand him a little bit. He's got these dual feelings towards Flagg. This guy saved his life and he owes his life to him. And he's been given this position of power and respect he's never had before. And he's aware of that. But at the same time, he realizes like this job sort of sucks and it's probably not going to end well for me one way or the other. And this guy just doesn't seem to have any clue this kid who's 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 just running around doing whatever. It just doesn't make much sense
0: at all. Yeah. It's like he's playing dress up a Halloween party. And at most he has like one thing he needs to do a day. Yeah. It was that trip out to the Hoover Dam to get Dana. That was his one to do do. for the day. And the rest of it was like party time. Let's change into my third crazy outfit. And uh, it'll be great. I picture Lloyd as a project manager who's in over his head and whose boss will kill him if he yep. fails. <laughs> so, so that like you said, that makes for an intriguing character. And even though he's in over his head, we also have this element of magic in the book where Lloyd has through Flag's influence or perhaps because of Flag's magic actually been given like a sharper mind mm, than right. when we first meet him in the book. This Lloyd He's just as much of a dum-dum as he was when we first meet him. Yeah. And it's clear that he's not going to become less of a dum-dum. Right. And he's fun to see on screen because he wears interesting outfits and, and he does like wild things, but how is he anybody's right hand? Yeah. How is he running Vegas on behalf of Flag? I, I don't see that happening.
1: Yeah, the way I, I like to think of it is Flag puts Lloyd in charge to represent him. Mm-hmm.
0: And that guy does not represent flag in any shape or form from the flag that we've seen so far. Yeah. So while we're still on the subject of old Vegas and new Vegas, leading up to the release of this episode, we were under the impression that the title for the episode was going to be Suspicious Minds. Yes. And then when the episode came out today, instead it was Fear and Loathing in New Vegas, which for some reason just doesn't work for me. Mm. It's kind of lame. I, I, I get the Hunter S. Thompson reference. Awesome. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't work. It didn't click for me. I think Suspicious Minds would have been better. For one thing, it really lends to the themes of the episode. We've got flags sussing out spies, Abigail finding out about the spies. We've got the mutual cross cut scenes of the sneaky sneakies going on with <laughs> Harold in Stu's house with Franny and Larry in Harold's house. Yeah. And you know, they're both spying on each other. So there's there's a lot of suspicious minds stuff going on. That would have been a really good episode title. While still being true to the musical cue that is Elvis in, yeah.
1: that was used in the show.
0: Yep. Plus, I'm a little disappointed because now I don't have an excuse to make fine young cannibals jokes. Man.
1: Yeah, it's weird because you drive me crazy with all your fine young cannibal jokes. <laughs> I find your fine young cannibal jokes to be a Roland gift to society. The lead singer of fine young cannibals is named Roland Gift. (laughs) I find that these jokes are a little bit raw. They need to be more cooked. (laughs) I got nothing. Uh... All right. So we talked a little bit here about how the character of Lloyd is not what we were expecting. But okay, you take them in a different direction than than what we thought. I think the other problem that is highlighted in this episode is that our characters do not have the depth that is needed to make these stories make sense and connect and really work as a as a narrative storyline. I'm glad we got rid of the flashbacks and we don't have that. We could focus on the story, but None of these characters have enough depth about them for us to care. A good example is they try to make a big deal about Nadine in this episode is she meets Mother Abigail after Joe goes running away. And Nadine's relationship with Joe seems weird. Like sometimes she really cares about him and other times like she's not anywhere near him and he's just off doing his own thing, which seems odd. But this time he runs off. She's concerned. It turns out Joe is with Mother Abigail. And Nadine and Mother Abigail have this like coded conversation, right? Yeah. Where Nadine sort of puts regret about her foster upbringing and how even though these people had a piano, just because they had music didn't mean they were good people and it was still rough. And Abigail makes this ham-handed metaphor about the piano and how she likes to leave it open because then the kids can see how it works and the hammer hits the the string and cause and effect and things have consequences and we all have a choice and you have a choice, Nadine. Um, but we don't really think that she has a choice. I mean, we saw her kill a guy in cold blood last episode after already stealing explosives and also making clear to Harold that their fates have been set and they need to go forward. So it seems like she's made multiple choices already to go and go what she's going to do. So when this comes
0: around with Mother Abigail, it just seems off. Yeah, we keep getting moments when the words that the characters say make it seem like Harold and Nadine have yet to make their choice, but they have. They have made their choice, right? At the point where Nadine is talking to Mother Abigail, there's no turning back for her. And the fact that she goes after Larry later to try to get herself off the hook with Flag, it's too late. Right? She's already murdered. Why, She should have had this change of heart the day before that happened, yep, it's too late. She is irrevocably on this path now, um, and even Harold is like, he's having second thoughts. Maybe we shouldn't go through with it. Maybe we should just leave town. All this, no, it's too late, man. And at the same time, he's undercutting that idea with, "Let me put spy cams in and <laughs> embarrass Franny in front of Stu and and point out how much she just never gave a crap about me my whole life." like, do you like these people or not? Do you want to leave or not? None of these things seem to add up. No, I get the idea. This is about choice. Characters can choose to be good or not. That's what makes Nadine and Harold more interesting than some of the other characters. But don't keep giving them choices after they can't choose anything else. That feels empty. Yeah. And that's not the only example. I'm having a big problem
1: with Larry. So Franny comes to Larry and. They both claim that they're suspicious of Harold. Larry, you know, gives these meaningful looks when when Stu tells Harold that his friend Weezak has died, mm. and Larry looks suspicious. And then when Franny comes to him, he's like, "Yeah, you're probably right. I'll go through with spying on uh, on Harold's house and seeing what I can find there." All of this would have so much more impact if we realize how much during the trip to Boulder Larry was relying on. Harold and Harold's thoughts, how he followed his signs all across the country and how he was constantly thinking, what would Harold do in these situations? Mm -hmm. And then to find out that Harold's not the man he thought he was, that would have so much more impact instead of, we just got like, oh yeah, Joe sort of thinks he's weird and he wasn't who I thought. But like, it would have had much more impact if we had seen all of that. But we never got, and even further in the book, Larry talks to himself as Detective Larry Doing mm-hmm. investigations and all that would have been so much more full and meaningful here, and it's just all gone in in the story.
0: Yeah. I, I can only agree with you there. I, I don't have much to add. <laughs> we also don't have much depth for Mother Abigail or Flag. We've seen almost nothing of Flag, and the, the representation that Skarsgard is doing of Flag, I think visually he's pretty spot on for me. You know, he's dressed the right way, his hair's the right way. The way he stands and moves seems a lot like what I imagined from the book, but we've spent no time with him. I don't know what makes him tick. I don't know what his motivations are. I don't know right. what he cares about, except that apparently he wants to find the spies. That's it. Yep. And for the same reasons, we've spent no time almost with Abigail. And she's supposed to be such an important character to the community in Boulder. And we, the audience, have spent almost zero time with her. And not only have we not spent much time
1: with her, it doesn't seem like any of the other characters in the show have spent much time with her. Yeah. She's walled herself off. We we got a short scene with Nick in this episode. We got a little bit of Ray getting upset when mother Abigail leaves, but we haven't seen their relationship other than a couple times early on. And the one time she met with the committee, like it's just been very scaled back. And, When we did see that first time when Larry comes to Boulder, there's like this encampment around her house, and that seems gone now. Mm -hmm. And Dana, as she's standing up to Flag at the end of this episode, he says something like, oh, the witch's powers are on, on the wane, and Dana stands up and makes this impassioned defense of Mother Abigail. And I'm like, has Dana even seen Mother Abigail, or met her, or know anything about her, or know what her powers are? And why is Flag so afraid of this woman, who we haven't actually seen have any powers or do anything all she's done is occasionally show up in people's dreams and say come to hemmingford home and she was pretty convinced she was gonna die when she was in hemmingford home like oh this is it for me i'm gonna Mm -hmm. live for another day like it's just yeah
0: i apologize to our listeners like it feels like our entire coverage of this episode and and of the show has just been us complaining but i i I just wish the show was better yeah don't worry fun stuff is around the corner yeah we'll we'll brighten up in a moment But one more comment on the no depth of characters, and that's the Larry and Nadine thing. You know, For a show that has overused flashbacks to the point where that has been my main point of contention and seems pretty universal that just about everybody watching the show has had a problem with that, I'm really sick of seeing this show now switch to this brief, oh, by the way, fill-in flashback thing that they're doing. Yep. When right before Nadine... Throws herself at Larry awkwardly and and in a like unappealing way. They cut to this 20-second-long flashback of them making out. <laughs> and then right back to Nadine throwing herself at Larry in the present moment. So that we understand that they they once tried to make this work, that they were attracted to each other or are still attracted to each other, and that for some reason they didn't. Yep. But that flashback wasn't long enough to show us anything about that relationship or why it didn't work or to indicate that they're actually are interested in having a relationship with each other at all. It's like if someone's telling you an anecdote and they realize your anecdote won't make sense unless they <laughs> give you one more detail. Oh, by the way, you got to know this other thing so you get the point. That's what the show feels like. Yeah. You know, when they were writing the script for this, they knew they were going to have that scene at some point before the cameras rolled. They could have put that flashback moment at a different episode or something. Right. Not immediately before or during the same scene. This is just sloppy. Yeah. And give us more Glenn. We love Glenn. And Nick. We barely get Nick. And Kojak. Where's Kojak? Come on. Just put Kojak on screen and my rating will go up a point. Just seeing a dog.
1: Enough with the bad writing here. I guess the thing that's frustrating, Jay, is to know that we can see the money on the screen. Yeah. We can see that these people are good actors. We know the people associated with the show are good. And for it to be failing like this is what's disappointing. Because who are you and I? We're just two guys. And we've come up with ways that the show could have been better on the fly, you know, two hours after we've watched the episode. And you would think that they'd have time in the writing room to fix this, but it's just not happening. Yeah. All right,
0: Jay. Dark tower thinnies? Once again, I did not catch any thinnies.
1: Yeah, this one's not great, but when we first get a look at the gladiator pit, the gladiator's wearing a number on his back, and it's 667. And at first, I'm like, oh, they had an opportunity to go 666 and be like, oh, this guy's a badass. But then I realized 6 plus 6 plus 7 equals... 19! That's right, everybody. Can we say it all together? 19, the number of the day.
0: That is a pretty fantastic thinnie. I love it. All right. Well, there we go. That's all I had. (laughs) I was watching for him. I was looking for things like hotel room numbers or which floor of the hotel was the penthouse or something. None of those jumped out at me. But you and I did find a couple of yucking it up moments, didn't we? We did. Why don't you start off?
1: So, I'm going to go a little different route on this one, Jay. What I found that made me sick in this episode was the awkward dinner that Franny and Harold had. Like, I'm (laughs) not a big fan of uncomfortable situations, and that was a very uncomfortable situation that made me sick,
0: and therefore, yucking it up. I think my yucking it up is of a similar vein. The thing that I noted here was that Flag drinks milk on ice. (laughs) You don't put ice cubes in a glass of milk. Nobody does that. Unless you're the embodiment of pure evil. Yeah, but still, you don't put (laughs) ice cubes in milk.
1: (laughs) I don't care if it's good for the
0: bones.
1: (laughs) Well, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons for supporting the show. As we've said before. It is a little bit more extra work and time and energy for us to get this show done on a weekly basis while we're covering the stand. And we appreciate each and every one of our patrons for helping us to keep the show on the internets. And not only do we thank them on this episode, but we also give them bonus podcast episodes one per month. And then if you're at a certain level, you can even help choose which of those bonus episodes we'll be working on. If you want to learn more, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Sean, is it time to talk some fun stuff? Yeah, let's clear the palette with some fun stuff.
0: All right. I will have a little bit of lemon sorbet and (laughs) and get into my fun stuff. I'll start us off. I absolutely got a kick out of the fact that Lloyd wears Eddie Murphy's outfit from Delirious. (laughs) Yes. That, That was a good choice for Lloyd. Agreed.
1: I want to call out the fact that Don't Fear the Reaper is played over the closing credits. And I think that that is a callback to the original stand, which. Used that right at the beginning of the first episode, I think, is as, uh, as things were going south quickly across America when the plague hit. And I thought that that was a cool little callback to the first stand. Yeah. And this was an episode that was filled with musical cues because of the Vegas setting, but that's the one that stood out for me.
0: This is just kind of like a really big nitpick thing. But when Mother Abigail leaves, yep. she writes a note on a post it and sticks it to her front door. And whoever in the props department wrote that note misspelled Abigail. Yeah. So the way it was spelled in the note is, I think, the more common spelling. Correct. The way it's spelled in the book and in uh, most of the promotional material I've seen, it's spelled like in the book. So basically, we're led to believe that Mother Abigail, who has lived for 108 years and (laughs) knows how to write her own name, spelled her name wrong on a note where she said, goodbye, I'm going to go die maybe if, unless God wills that I live Well, well, that was the other thing. Unless he wills it, and he was not capitalized either, I don't think. she never would have put that as a lowercase h.
1: Yeah, that was the thing that caught my attention too, so, uh,
0: ouch. Oh, maybe she didn't write it. I- (gasps) You just blew my mind.
1: This is going to be a murder mystery instead. The last three episodes, who killed Mother Abigail? (laughs) It'll be like Clue. Uh, we. Also had a nice little moment in Vegas when Julie Lowry, who I think likes hanging out with Lloyd because of the power it gives her and being close to power, but maybe Mm. doesn't like sleeping with Lloyd so much because...
0: He only has 17 teeth.
1: (laughs) She likes to say Flag's name. And whenever she says Flag's name, it makes Lloyd very upset. Stop saying that. Stop saying that. And it turns out that saying it enough times will make Lloyd impotent. Or, as he likes to put it, I'll go soft as a pool floaty. <laughs> yeah. I'll be using that going forward. Soft as a pool floaty. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, another thing that I noticed was that um, in one of Nadine's dream sequences with Flag, she approaches him from behind and he's sitting down facing a campfire. And I am 99% sure that. Skarsgård had Plumber's Crack showing in that scene. I'm pretty sure that the walking dude probably goes commando. I mean, he's not a tidy whities type, right? So if he's wearing his lowrider jeans and he's squatting down low on a rock next to a campfire, he's probably going to be showing some Plumber's Crack. Yeah. When you said that you
1: think you saw this and you made a point of telling me exactly at what minute in the show it was, <laughs> uh,
0: I did not go back and look. Come on, I made it possible for you to fast forward to a very important moment in the show. Uh, I did not have the desire
1: nor the willpower to do so, and so I cannot confirm or deny whether or not Flag showed Plumber's Crack. But for those of you out there who want to, I think Jay thinks it's minute 21 in the
0: show. Thereabouts. Yeah, don't wear out your VHS copy looking for the (laughs) Skarsgård Plumber's Crack. Uh, That's going to end our fun
1: stuff because nothing can top that. It is time for us to give our rating for this episode. Jay, how many Jamie Sheridans did you give this episode?
0: I really had a hard time with this episode. I gave it two Jamie Sheridans. Although I did enjoy most of what we got from Flag. This was the most Flag we've seen. You know, we saw Das Boot. We saw a couple of other brief glimpses. But here we actually had him in a scene. He had dialogue. He had glowing eyes
1: for some reason. You know, you could almost make that a dark tower thinny. Like, I, I got a sense his eyes were glowing, but like you could see space and stars, and it made me think of when Roland goes on his little journey uh, after the uh, palaver. It might be a stretch of a dark tower thinny, but I could see his eyes being like, "Oh
0: yeah, oh uh, yeah," like when Roland has the the end of Highlander moment when he's like, "I know everything. I yeah. am everything." Basically, yeah. actually, I saw those eyes. That eye effect was like it was trying to look exactly like the magic stones he's given to his minions, his, his seconds or, or his minions. Yeah. It's kind of like maybe there's a connection there. Like the stones represent his true eyes. Like that's what his eyes actually look like. And maybe he can see these people because he's given them the stone. Maybe. In the book, that stone vacillates. Sometimes you can see the sigil of the Crimson King, the eye symbol in there. I'm reading way too much into what was just sort of a less than stellar, uh, <laughs> CGA effect, but these effects aren't very special. They're just regular. How many Jamie Sheridan's did you give the episode?
1: I gave it one and a half Jamie Sheridan's. I, I'm not a fan, Jay.
0: I'm not a fan of, of giving half Jamie Sheridan's.
1: So do you want, do you want me to give it a one Jamie Sheridan? Cause I'll do it. <laughs>
0: So you'll, you'll, you'll average down is what you're saying.
1: Yeah. At this point, I think I'm sort of rating on a gestalt. So like what impact have all five episodes had on me Mm. and I am not giving the show the benefit of the doubt anymore. And so I'm ranking down.
0: But if you had noticed the plumber's crack before you gave the rating, (laughs) would it be different?
1: Maybe I would have gone to zero Jamie Sheridan's. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we will soldier on. That'll be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, episode six, <laughs> The Vigil. Or at least that's what we've been told it's called. Mm-hmm. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.
0: The stand. The stand. The stand.
1: Greetings, Highlander. (laughs) Thought you
0: promised never to do that again.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) When my wife was around. Okay.
0: Then she hasn't listened to the episode. <laughs> <laughs>